Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ambassadors Forum Radio Show here on True Talk 800 AM KPDQ. I'm your host, Roy Swart, a bought and paid for bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to answer life's hard questions the same way Jesus would. A lot of you have asked me about that intro when I say I'm Roy Swart, a bought and paid for bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wanted to take just a minute today and explain a little bit about why I use that introduction. The bondservant is the same word that Paul uses to introduce himself in many of his letters. The Greek word is doulos. It's the idea of a slave, a bondservant, someone who is completely in submission and service to another person. There are various scriptures that talk about this. First Corinthians 6.20 says, You are not your own. You are bought with a price. And in Galatians 3.13, it goes on to explain even more that Christ bought us with his blood. There's another connotation to that idiom, bought and paid for, that we use today in our English language. At first glance, it seems a little redundant. When you buy something, you purchase it, you exchange value, and then you own it. That's if you buy something. If you pay for something, it's the same thing. So bought and paid for, it's like I'm. it's bought and bought. But the idiom in English has this connotation of bought and paid for, completely owned by this one thing completely dedicated to this one thing. And that is how I feel about my faith. It's how I think the Bible describes the Christian faith for everyone, is that when we are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are made holy, we are sanctified. Those are also biblical terms, holy and sanctified. We are completely set apart for service to God. Now, we may be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher in our day jobs. We may be a father or a mother or an employee or a volunteer, and we may do lots of different things, but at our core, we have been redeemed to serve God. And so when I say I am bought and paid for, bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to remember that that means all in. It means totally committed. It means completely surrendered to God. And I hope that is how all of you view your faith. Well, today we're going to do another show of answering some of the questions that we're getting on our website. Here's the first one. Did God intend for humans today to be vegetarian or vegan? Well, that's a, that's a bit outside the normal scope of this ministry, but let's give it a shot. In the book of Genesis, God explains that Adam and Eve were originally created to eat only plants. Genesis one twenty nine says, Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. Now, some of you may have not thought about that before, but yes, when God created Adam and Eve, and even all the animals, he created them to be vegetarians. Later on in Genesis, after the flood, 
God confirms that the original diet was indeed only grains and vegetables because he then expanded their diet to include meat. In the context of talking to Noah about the animals, he says in Genesis 9, 3, Every moving thing that lives shall now be food for you. As I had given you the green plants before, I now give you everything. So, to be very clear, no. The scripture doesn't support the idea that God intends for all humans today to be vegetarian or vegan. In Genesis chapter 9, God specifically permitted the eating of meat. Later in Romans chapter 14, Paul says that we should accept other believers and not argue with them about what they think is right or wrong on matters that are not sin issues. He says we need to give each other the liberty or the freedom to be convicted of matters of conscience differently. For example, he says, eating meat is a matter of personal choice. Let me read from Romans chapter 14 verses 2 and 3. For instance, one person believes it is all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. For God has accepted all of them. So what's the conclusion here? There's nothing wrong with choosing to eat a vegetarian or vegan diet. But nowhere does God require it or really even commend it. Now, is there anything wrong if you want to be a vegetarian or a vegan? No, of course not. But there's no justification for saying everyone should be a vegetarian or a vegan. Now, why did I choose to address this question on the show today? It's certainly not this classical apologetics topic of does God exist or is the Bible true? But the reason I wanted to tackle it was because I think it can help demonstrate a few apologetics principles. The first one is this. We should always go to the Bible for our answers. I want to challenge you to test me on this. The next time you have something that's confusing, that's challenging, that you don't understand, I want you to commit to yourself, you know what, I am going to search the Bible and see if it has answers. Google can be a great help in helping you get started. Commentaries, friends who are Christians, pastors, parents. The next time you're confused about something, I want you to spend 30 minutes researching that topic in the Bible, and I guarantee you, you will be amazed at how much the Bible has to say. Now, one of the key principles I want you to keep in mind is that you have to read the whole Bible. In today's question, for example, there were both Old Testament and New Testament passages that spoke to the same content. That is very often the case. Sometimes there will be two or three or four or five or more passages from different books all talking about the same thing. As my friend and mentor Greg Kokel would say, never take one Bible verse out of context and build a theology around it. You always need to consider the whole counsel of God. Number two, as Christians, we always need to think clearly. 
we need to be prepared to spend some time and effort synergizing what the Bible says in these multiple passages and thinking them through to their logical conclusion. For example, in today's question, there is a few obvious facts. All humans were at one time vegetarian. Number two, all humans now have been given permission to eat meat. Then we think that through to its logical conclusion, and the correct deduction is that it is both permissible to not eat meat and to eat meat. And it's clear that one group should never judge the other. And the third thing here, and this is probably the most important point I want to make on this question, is that most people are often motivated by good intentions. In other words, people who disagree with you are not all evil monsters. Now, I know everybody's going to say, well, of course, Roy, that's obvious. But that's not how a lot of people are behaving today. Today's culture of bullying those who don't hold the same position as you, it's shameful. It should never be found amongst reputable Christian organizations, churches, or ministries. And it should be called out and condemned in the culture when we see it happen. There is almost always a heart behind the question that we as apologists and Christians need to be looking for. If you're having a live conversation, it's easy. You can just ask the person in front of you clarifying questions to try and find out what the question behind the question is. But if it's just a static question on social media or the internet like we got on today's website question, you have to work pretty hard to try and discern. Sometimes you might guess right. Often, you'll guess wrong. But it is always useful to try. Now, in the case of today's question... I see a good heart that wants to try and help protect animals. Animals are God's creation, and they should be treated with dignity and respect. In fact, we humans were given dominion over the animals at creation. And as a reflection of God's nature, our responsibility includes a measure of stewardship and protection of animals. But animals were not made in the image of God. It might be helpful to consider their position in the wild. Now, it might be a little disturbing to think about this, but animals in their natural habitat are routinely massacred and torn apart and eaten by other animals. That's their lot in life. It's literally how God created it to be. We shouldn't condemn a predator for killing and eating what God has created him to consume. But humans are fundamentally different. When the value and protection of human life is mentioned in the Bible, it's often coupled with the phrase, made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6 is a great example. This is God talking to Noah. He says, I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. And if a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands because God made human beings in his own image. God gives us the reason why we treat animals and humans differently. The animal kingdom is amazing and wonderful and we should protect it and we should steward it. 
but they are not human beings. So while Christians should be saddened that numerous animals are abused in many many industries today, it's helpful to let the Word of God direct our emotions towards action on such topics. For example, we need to keep things in proper perspective. Our compassion and desire for the appropriate treatment of animals should not cause us to neglect to be outraged at the butchering of the most vulnerable humans among us, the unborn. Let me just give a few statistics. According to data published by the World Health Organization, and that is not a Christian organization that is friendly towards the gospel by any means, there are over 50 million babies killed every year through abortion. This is comparable to an entire city, almost the size of our second largest city in Oregon, our capital of Salem, being slaughtered every single day. Another way to look at it is abortions have been the number one cause of death in the world for decades, accounting for more deaths than the rest of the top 10 causes combined. What I mean by that is if you take number two, heart disease, and you take number three, stroke, and you go all the way down through all the rest of the top 10 causes of death of people in the world, number one, abortion, is more than all the rest of the top 10 combined. Where's the public outrage on this? Where are the continuous protests and social upheaval at such an obvious injustice? Let me challenge you with a thought experiment today. Now, the Humane Society is a very noble institution. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it through donating your time or adopting a cat or dog or other means. Their stated mission is to end suffering for all animals. Now, do you think it should be a higher priority to end suffering for all humans or all animals? Is it realistic? Is it even good? Let me try a different line of questioning on this. Is God good? Yeah, of course. How do we know that? Because the Bible teaches us that God is good. And I don't have time to go through it on the radio today, but the Bible is so clear. And you can get there philosophically, you can get there biblically, you can get there logically. God is good. Now, is he all-powerful? Again, yeah, he can certainly do anything that's possible to do. So could God have created a universe in which there was no suffering? Yeah, he could have done that. But did he? No. But wait a minute, isn't God good? Yeah. Do you see where I'm heading with this? There can be some good that could come from some suffering. Even God, who's the most capable and compassionate being in the universe, didn't choose to end all suffering, even just for people. Instead, he chose to demonstrate the greatest love of all time by laying his own life down for his friends. 
Obviously, this is the story of the cross, where humanity was reconciled to God through the unjust suffering of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul explains it this way in the book of Acts, when he was being questioned by Festus and King Agrippa. And they were saying, Paul, what is this ridiculous new religion called Christianity? It doesn't even make sense. And Paul says this in Acts chapter 26, verse 2 and 3, I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and that he would be the first to rise from the dead. And in this way, God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike would be announced. Okay, that turned out to be a little bit bigger answer than I was expecting for that one question. So let's move on to the second one. Why do Christians worship a God that oppresses women by condoning polygamy? This is a tough one because, as I explained in that first question, I don't think he does. If this was a live question, I could ask the person... I've read the Bible. I've read the Bible many times. I've studied the Bible through and through. I don't think God does condone polygamy. What led you to that conclusion? Why do you think he does? You know, what evidence do you have that he, that the Bible does condone polygamy, etc.? But we don't always have that luxury. So here we have a static question on our website. So I'm going to explain what I think the Bible does say about why I think it says it doesn't condone polygamy. And then I'm going to take a a guess at maybe what the question behind the question is and try and answer that as well. For the first part, do I think it condones polygamy? No. Um, Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 8, Jesus is answering somebody about marriage, and he says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He's quoting Genesis there. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. It's easy to see that you know God's design for marriage from the beginning for everybody was one man, and one woman, not one man and two women, or one man and four women, or anything like that. The two shall become one flesh. Period. So, God's intention was for one man, one woman. There's no polygamy there. Now, if I had to try and guess as to what the question behind the question, now I'm speculating, I could be wrong, but someone might say, yeah, but Roy, there were examples in the Old Testament where godly men married multiple wives. You know, I can think of Abraham, uh, Jacob, David, and Solomon for sure, a thousand wives and concubines. But just because there were some godly men that may have been blessed by God in portions of their lives, and by the way, all of those men were also condemned by God for other things that they did, Uh, don't mistake the blessing that God may give someone in a portion of their life for a sanctioning of every part of their lifestyle. And that's important, especially for today, where the world sees Christians behaving a certain way. 
And they say, well, wait a minute. I I see that Christian, and they say they believe in God, and they go to church, and they even witness to me about Christ and read the Bible. But look at this thing. That thing that they're doing, I don't agree with that. Yeah, you're right, and you should challenge them on that. If you see a Christian stealing from work, if you see a Christian abusing people or treating people the way that the Bible doesn't call them to treat people— Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you should challenge them and say, look, this portion of your life is not lining up to what you say you believe. I know as a Christian, I would welcome that. There may be blind spots. There may be even sin in my life. And I welcome that challenge, that conviction from a Christian or a non-Christian to say, your life needs to line up with the principles that you proclaim. And I hope every Christian would welcome that feedback into their life. Now let's go back to the Bible and see if there's some other areas that might help us understand whether God would ever even allow polygamy. There's a couple of places in the New Testament where God repeats a rule for the leaders, the elders of a church. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Now an elder is to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, etc., etc. So God is holding up the standard of the leaders in his church, and he says, here's one metric. They should be the husband of one wife. Now, that doesn't mean that an unmarried person can't be an elder. That's a whole topic for another discussion another day. But certainly a man who has two wives would not qualify for the standard that God says, this is what I'm looking for. Another example is when Paul uses the marriage relationship between one man and one wife as the best illustration of Christ and the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, again, going back to Genesis, he's quoting, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul gives this explanation. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. What Paul is saying here is, when you take a sinful man and a sinful woman, and you put them together in a marriage relationship... It should end in conflict and strife and all kinds of fighting and discord. Now, what should happen in a Christian marriage is people from the outside should observe that marriage and say, wait a minute, how are they still together? How are they loving each other? How are they raising their children in an atmosphere of love? Because that doesn't naturally come from two sinful people. And a Christian marriage should be an example of the power of God to redeem, to work out forgiveness and love and grace, and it should be an example to the world. And what he's saying is, that's a picture of Christ in the church. When the church is so united to Christ, and they're not about personal agendas, they're not about making a name for themselves, when the church and Christ are beautifully united together, the world should look on and say, wait a minute, how's that work? Uh, 
you know, no other institution behaves like this. No other organization operates like this. There is something different about the church. It's the power of God working through a broken set of people to bring God glory. And that illustration makes absolutely no sense in a world where polygamy is okay. There's no third party to that illustration. Well, I was a little long-winded today. I think we only got through two questions. But I hope these answers and the explanation of the logic required to arrive at them has been helpful. My encouragement to you is get in the game. Ask questions. Research the answers. Go to the Bible and discuss amongst your friends. The Ambassadors Forum is here to help you get started. Go to our website at theambassadorsforum.com. While you're there, you can look at some of the questions that we've already answered. You can ask us your hard question. Keep them coming. We love to hear these questions. Make sure you sign up to receive our monthly newsletter. You can browse through some of our other helpful resources. Make sure to follow us on Facebook for all the latest updates. And sign up to join us for one of our monthly forum events where we have great speakers presenting on relevant topics. Finally, thank you for joining us on the radio today. You can join us every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on True Talk 800 a.m. KPDQ. I pray that God will raise you up in your own faith and send you out to share that faith with others in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, I'm Roy Swart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 